As we prepare to hear a story from Scripture, let us first pause and ask God to open our hearts and minds to what God might be saying. Lord our God, we come in here from different seasons, in different places, with different needs and hopes and dreams. But however we come, we all come in need of you, the one who sows seed into our lives, seeds of grace and truth that are to take root and germinate and grow into something good and life-giving, not just for us, but for those around us. And so I pray that for a moment, you might be able to quiet whatever might be loud within us, so that in the silence, we can hear you speaking to us. And in hearing you, act on your word to the glory of your name. This we pray in Jesus Christ, amen. The scripture reading this morning is from Mark chapter 4, verses 1 through 20. And again, he began to teach by the sea. Such a very large crowd gathered around him that he got into a boat on the sea and sat there while the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. He began to teach them many things in parables. And in his teaching, he said to them, listen, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell on the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and it sprang up quickly, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. Other seed fell into good soil and brought forth grain, growing up and increasing and yielding, 30 and 60 and a hundredfold. And he said to them, let anyone with ears to hear, listen. When he was alone, those who were around him along with the 12 asked him about the parables. And he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything comes in parables in order that they may indeed look but not perceive, may indeed listen but not understand, so that they may not turn again and be forgiven. And he said to them, do you understand this parable? Then how will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. These are the ones on the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown on the, in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground. When they hear the word, they immediately receive it with joy, but they have no root and endure only for a while. Then when trouble or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are those sown among the thorns. These are the ones who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the lure of wealth and the desire for other things come in and choke the word, and it yields nothing. But these are the ones sown on the good soil. They hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30 and 60 and 100 fold. This is the word of the Lord. 
So today I wanted to start off by sharing with you the last line of a book that had an impact on me. It's a book by a guy named George Bernanos, who is a French Catholic writing and living around the time of the two world wars. And he was watching the moral decay of both the church and also the government. And he writes this book called The Diary of a Country Priest, which is a story about a meager, pitiful, unnamed priest of a parish in rural France. And a parish, if, if you're not familiar with it, is a Catholic term for a church building and community and surrounding location where this specific church and grouping of, of followers of Jesus has care of. So the last line of the book is one of my favorites, and yes, I'm going to spoil the ending for you because I doubt that you would want to pick this book up in the first place. In the final scene, our poor, pitiful peasant priest is gasping for his last breaths as his body fails him from the stomach cancer that's devouring his body. He is dying in a bed in the home of his friend Luis, whom he went to school with, seminary. Luis also became a priest, but left behind the priesthood for a wedding band one day. Now, in this moment, there's feelings of angst because Luis has called for another priest to read our poor peasant priest his last rites, a sacrament in the Catholic Church, like unto baptism or communion, which is very important in the last dying moments. But the priest has not come yet, and time was running out. Luis, the friend, recounts it in this way. Finally, I was bound to voice my deep regret that such delay by this priest threatened to deprive my comrade, my friend, of the final consolations of the church. A few moments later, he, the dying, pitiful priest, put his hand over mine, and his eyes entreated me to come closer to him. And then he uttered these words almost in my ear. Does it matter? All is grace. All is grace, or in another translation, grace is everywhere. This dying priest is a man who, at the beginning of the book, stands atop a hill overlooking this poor, pitiful, rural French village. And he puts it so eloquently as he describes them. My parish is like any others. My parish is boring and bored stiff. It's meant to be a joke. <laughs> that I get, I don't have the comic delivery down yet. Five more years, I'll get be there, right? No other word for it, he said. Like so many others, I can see them eaten up by boredom, and I can't do anything about it. For a book that ends so wonderfully and beautifully, it kind of starts off in a clunky, horrible kind of way. Because boredom is the least of the problems, or maybe boredom is the byproduct of the problems that haven't been taken care of, because nobody's willing to fix them. 
The pauper priest is one who grew up in a very poor family, and he committed himself to a life of denying himself by entering into the priesthood. But he was unique amongst his colleagues because his colleagues used their status in the church to indulge themselves in rich food and expensive drink and haughty homes. Our pauper priest and, and hero, if he can be called that, described himself as awkward, clumsy, poor of speech, and a foolish guy who didn't really know what was going on. And one writer describes him as this, his efforts to share the good news of Jesus were met with disdain and hostility and resistance. He was tricked by tradesmen. He said mass in a near empty church he was ineffectual as an administrator, too soft, too servile, too self-effacing. And yet, while this odd priest was inept in every way, he lived a life of self-denial for the sake of others. And not only had a sensitivity to the suffering of other people's life, but also seemed to attract those who were suffering most because of the humble, caring way in which he lived. Perhaps the only success in the 311-page diary of this priest comes through a conversation with a mother of two children whose heart had turned to stone in rebellion against God because the death of her son. And she resented God and in this life, she stood, perhaps losing her daughter due to the fact that her heart was so stony that no love could ever get in or go out. And our pitiful priest helps to pierce and break this woman's hard heart and invite her to love again and find peace with the past and hope for going forward. Each episode of this novel is a revelation about our priest's encounter with humanity's suffering and heartache, betrayals and wanton disregard for others. Our poor little priest comes to and takes on all this suffering, all this pain, the wounds, the wrongs that have happened, the boredom that occurs, and becomes this representation of Jesus and Jesus' suffering for the wounds of the world. And in spite of all this deep suffering, he carries on because his, his conviction, though he doubts it sometimes, his conviction that we are loved by God, who also suffered rejection and loss and humiliation. He believed that this story of God becoming like us, becoming human, points us toward others, points us toward community and the world to embody love and kindness and respect for everything and everyone, especially those hardest parts of life. And as he bears these things for others, he must finally confront his own suffering, the evil of cancer that's been growing in him, causing him to survive on a diet of a little bread and wine. And in his own suffering, he becomes this kind of representation of Jesus' own suffering. And that's when he proclaims this mystery of all life. 
that grace is everywhere. Grace for this cure, for this priest, lies in the ability to love others more than the self and to take their pain as his pain and to see suffering as a proof of God's love. For in touching suffering and hardship, we become aligned and in tune with Christ in a very special, powerful, mysterious way. The priest's life lived in the midst of a parish community submerged in sin and evil shows how grace can win, not in spectacular fashion, but through the transformation that can take place in a person's soul. Like that woman who had two children whose heart had turned to stone. And our priest even came to have grace for himself. Nearing death, he says, how easy it is to hate oneself. But true grace is to forget. Yet if pride could die in us, the supreme grace would to be love myself in all its simplicity. Grace is everywhere. Grace is everywhere. The priest lived with a conviction to attend to the suffering of the world with kindness. And he came to learn that God's grace is everywhere. And this novel is about the shaping and the changing of perspective of this one man and how the world works. And I want to invite you into some reflection maybe that you can do in this moment, or maybe questions that you take with you to reflect on. What are your convictions that underlie who you are? What are the learnings of your life? What is your perspective on how this world functions and works? A lot of us grow up and form convictions and values from an early age based on parents or guardians who are there to teach us, answering questions about whether people can be trusted or not, what goals we should have, how we should view money and politics and religion. For me, I learned that you need to work hard because nothing's given to you in life. I learned about the value of self-sufficiency, but you have the responsibility to care for others and a broader community. That I learned that you gotta go to college or else you're a bum which, given the rise and importance of, of trade schools, is obviously being proved a little off base. I learned that, that business principles and free markets and self-sufficiency were the golden rules, but there's a problem with unions and government programs and being in need. I learned that family dinners at six every night and church is on Sundays. Those are just the things that kind of shaped me. And there are things that shape each of us from our growing up, and perhaps you're calling things to mind right now. And those are good and okay things to do. But then there comes a point, maybe when we're out of the house, out from underneath our parents' roof, or maybe we're still under our parents' roofs, where life experiences can have an effect on us, challenge us, our convictions and our perspectives. We start college or get our first job and both experiences lead to successes or failures. 
We see that there's politics in everything, from school to work to, yes, government too. Bills start coming and they don't stop. And the scary thing is set in. The mindset of scarcity, is my education enough? Is my job enough? Am I enough? We experience friendships and relationships, marriages that can be encouraging and healthy and uplifting, or maybe codependent and unhealthy and destructive. And nothing prepares when family can enter hard times or fall apart or you lose a friend. All of us encounter joys and loss, goodness and evil, seasons of richness and suffering. And all these can impact how we view the world and how we begin to operate in the world. And sometimes, like the woman in that story, we can get a hard heart. That's just one example of how life can shape us. But I imagine whatever our convictions and our learning, the one thing that life rarely, if ever, teaches us is that God's grace is everywhere. God's grace is everywhere. Our poor priest was convinced, in spite of his doubts, that we are loved by God and that love and kindness in the face of suffering and hardship was the way to live in the end, he learned that clearly. Would you say that your perspective on how the world works aligns with our priests? All of this, all of this is to enter in and approach our passage for this morning because we're working our way through Mark's gospel and we come to a story where Jesus is surrounded by a good many people He's been healing people, teaching pierced people about mercy and wisdom, and he seems like the kind of ruler that everybody wants to rule things. Because he stands in contradiction to the other rulers, kings, and religious figures that are always somehow bent with some interests and compromised by politics of their position. So the people come to Jesus hoping that he's something more and he begins teaching and saying this phrase, the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, and it is this loaded term that could take hours to unpack. And we won't do that here, but, but essentially with this term, Jesus is, is saying that in him there has come this rule and this declaration, this revelation, this making known about what the world is actually is like and how the world actually works according to God, the true deigned ruler and creator and redeemer and sustainer. He has come to challenge the powerful people who are bent by politics and self-interest and offer a perspective on how the world works that we've glimpsed through our priests already. And he invites us into stories like the sower to really challenge our perspective and reshape our convictions and relearn about how life really is and should be. Inviting us to trust in a vision that God's grace is everywhere. That it's not some scarce resource. When he begins teaching the crowd, he shares a vision. The kingdom of God is like a sower who went out to sow, and the seed of the sower is, is the word of God. And the sower sends seed on the path where it's snatched up by birds, and on rocky ground where it doesn't take root, among thorns where the plant 
around it, choke it out. But then on good soil, where it grows and it thrives and produces a rich harvest. Two things I want you to hear from this. There are many things that we could explore, but two things. First, I want you to approach this passage with this observation. The sower sows seed everywhere. Not just on the good soil and the rich soil and the healthy soil, but on the dry, hard, lifeless, failing soil. Our God sows word, sows grace everywhere. God sows grace to the places of our lives ready to receive it and also to the places where there's barely any glimmer of hope for it to take root and live. Second, it is really easy to hear this passage and just come away thinking, okay, so what soil am I? <laughs> and I think that is, a, uh, that is a good and a helpful thing to think of, but sometimes I think our lives are more complex than that. I want to reframe this as a passage where you recognize God is sowing grace, sowing grace into each part of your life. The good and the rich and the healthy soils and parts of your soul as well as the hardened and the broken and healthy parts where life might not be able to grow right now. And that's because God believes that life can come to these places too. So I want to invite you to something. I want you to imagine your life like a house with a front yard and backyard and side yards. And just think about that for a moment. All of us like to keep the front yard healthy and well kept. In the front yard of your life right now, I imagine there are some really good things going on. What are the things that you share with others? The parts of your life that you're itching to discuss or want to throw up on social media for people to view and to see. These parts are kind of like our front yard. We might even manicure and take care of the side yards in the same way. But we all have a backyard. We all have a backyard, the part of our lives that not many people get to see, the part of our lives where there are rocky relationships and hard hearts or minds, places in our lives where we're anxious or so consumed with the material needs and wants that they're like weeds choking out life. Each of us has a backyard, a secret self perhaps, that nobody knows about except for us because we don't like to share it or people know about it. We don't want people to visit it or see it. So like an unkempt backyard, we are unwilling to deal with it. And sometimes we go out into this backyard or we see these problems creep up and we just look at it and say, well, there's that. And we turn around and go right back into the house and run from them. These challenges, these hardnesses, these things that we don't want to deal with because they're parts of our lives that might be suffering from the lack of life. And yet God keeps sowing and sowing and sowing seeds of grace in life. But it's not taking root because we are not dealing with it. And so our invitation from God is to see that God is sowing seeds into the secret places of our lives that only we know about. The backyards that we would rather hide. 
And God's doing this because God believes healing and health and wholeness would be better for us and can happen. And our invitation is to tend to all the parts of our lives and watch God's seeds of grace germinate into something. And my practical encouragement as you go about this work, last week I had a, a practical encouragement, a spiritual practice of, of sitting in silence because it's a helpful spiritual practice to help see what's going on in us and to allow God to bring up to the surface of us what's really going on. But my practical word of advice this week is to find a good friend, a good friend like our priest, who's willing to go with you to the rough place of your backyard and the rough places of your life that you know about, but you hesitate to share. And some of you have the spouses and friends or family who would go and have go and heart those healthy, encouraging relationships that help you work through these, these rough backyards of your life. And that is a true gift. A true gift when friends or family or people can look at your backyard and not turn and run, but move toward you with understanding and compassion and kindness. Like our suffering priest and point out that there are seeds of grace even in those tough places of your life. And if you can't think of people, I invite you to, to come talk to me, or an elder, or deacon, or people here, because I think we really deeply want to, I don't think, I know we really deeply want to care for you where you're at. And I hope that health and healing and attending to the things that are rocky and hard and painful and hard in your life begin to be places where grace germinates and life grows. In all, as we I draw to a close, I think the thing from this, as I've been reflecting on this passage and on our story about the priests, is that I don't want you to get to the end of your life on your bed and have your last words and perspective be finally, aha, God's grace is everywhere. But I want you to go out from these doors, back to your homes, into your places of work, to your schools, with that frame of mind and that perspective that, that God is sowing grace everywhere. And there is no shortage of God's movement and grace in our lives. So may you know that God's grace is everywhere, within you, around you, and abounding everywhere in this world. Let's pray. God, between the words that I've spoken and the words that have been heard, I pray that your word, which you talk about in this passage, is a powerful seed of hope and faith and life. I pray that they take root within us by the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So this morning...